This episode, I'm joined once again by author, researcher, and futurist Kingsley Dennis. He is the author of multiple books on modernity, control, and esotericism. And in this episode, we discuss his latest book, The Modern Seeker, a perennial psychology for contemporary times, alongside discussions on ancient wisdom, rebellion, George Gajif, technology, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers, making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Amidic's podcast, or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Kingsley Dennis, thanks very much for joining us once again on Hermetics Podcast. We are going to be discussing your latest book, The Modern Seeker, a perennial psychology for contemporary times. Um, This is a book, as many would imagine from that title, about perennial psychology, and in a certain sense, perennial philosophy, which I think is uh, sort of... It's been left. It's been left by the wayside. The the idea of a sort of an overarching, you know, ancient potential towards truth. Um, so uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. So why did you decide to write this book, and and how would you describe it? Well, James, I decided to write it because it's always been a personal uh, interest of mine. This type of um, philosophy. So throughout my adult life, I've been. Um, researching and uh, involving myself in, in this type of um, knowledge, let's say. But it was mostly a, a personal project that was, uh, you know, a part of my own interests. And I haven't never, I haven't before written uh, so directly about it. This in, this type of um, subject has always infused my work, let's say, you know, more indirectly. And, and a lot of the authors that uh, come up in that book have been, in some way or other, kind of influencing what I write. But I came to a time where I thought, well, let's not let's make this personal project into an actual publication. Uh, also gave me time to, um, I suppose, focus on, on what I considered to be um, around this subject. And it was a, a book that I didn't write straight away. I came, I came on and off it, um, as you say, more of a personal project between other ones. And then, um, then I sat down and... It came out, and I think it was, you know, appropriate these times. Um, if you ask me what I consider to be this perennial uh, philosophy slash psychology, um, it's that, well, from you know, from the beginnings of, of I suppose, early civilization, there's always been um, the understanding that there's a wisdom tradition, an an esoteric understanding of of the human condition, and. I think throughout history, we have these two streams, the esoteric, the inner heart of of something, and then the exoteric, the outer visible side of it. And especially in the, let's say, the religious stream or the the, um, knowledge streams, the exoteric has been the dominant visible one. And it's also been the one that's kind of culturally survived in its form. And now, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing either, because... Um, you know, some that survived without change can become quite uh, static. Um, but let's say it's often it's often managed to survive because it's also been embedded in the major exoteric uh, religions, for example. So if you just take the three religions of the book, um, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, there's been an esoteric side of those which have been recognized. For example, in Judaism, it's the Kabbalah. In Christianity, it's the Gnosticism. And sometimes also the before that they refer to, or after that, sorry, Neoplatonism. And in uh, Islam, it's being referred to as Sufism. So these are aspects of an esoteric inner tradition which have also survived in line with an exoteric platform. But besides that, there's always been this presence of this of these wisdom teachings, let's say, and not always visible. And just to finish this off. The people have generally referred to them as the as the philosophy, the perennial philosophy. Yet, of course, you know, as we know, coming out of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, and philosophy has been, you know, very much tied with an intellectual path, a kind of, you know, empirical, rational path as well. And the the wisdom traditions have always talked a lot more about the human condition, almost as a kind of psychology. But there was never the, I suppose, a modern language or vocabulary to frame it that way. And now that we, especially in the you know the last half a century, especially and especially in the last century since 
you know, psychiatry and depth psychology, we've had the language. And I think the, the psycholo psychological aspect of the wisdom tradition perhaps is more suited in today's modern age rather than the philosophy side alone. So that's why I shifted the term from uh, perennial philosophy to the psychology. Okay. Do you, do you think the psychology term is helpful in the sense that, you know, you're making it clear that we should actually do something with perennial thought as opposed to just, you know, theorize on it? Yes. I mean, the whole point of, of, the, of a genuine wisdom tradition, let's say, is that it, it actually can be utilized. It's not just something that we theorize or we, we have blind faith and we follow it. Um, you know, really, the genuine wisdom tradition has always been a, a human practical science, is that it's always been put to use. Otherwise, you know, why, why would there be it? And, it, you know, it can actually work organically through a person and change them from the inside out, not just how you think. And also, um, what I come across is that the the perennial um, path is is not one that you just take on blind faith. Um, ne neither do you take on belief. I mean, you may need a belief as a vehicle to get you there. Um, but once you get there, then you have to try to get away from belief because belief is is um, a structure which may help a person to achieve certain goals, but it's not a complete knowing. You know, um, when you, you know, if you put your hand in the fire, you don't, when you, you burn your hand, you don't say you believe that fire is hot. You know, <laughs> you know the fire is hot. So there's a, there's a bridge between belief and knowing, which doesn't always get, um, uh, let's say, scrutinized, really. And I think that um, if we can use vocabulary carefully, perennial path makes us realize that belief only takes a person so far. And uh, after that has to be utilized. So through experiential knowing, a person comes to realize what it is or what it's not. James. Huh. I, uh, you know, I said to you before this started that, that Gajif will probably come into this. And uh, already I'm seeing, you know, the helpful language of Gajif where he differentiates between knowing and understanding in the sense that, you know, knowing is what we get in school. We, we go through data, we just tick the boxes, you know, we memorize the test. That's just knowledge. Um, but there's a huge difference, as you're stating there, between the, the, you know, knowing that a fire is hot and putting your hand in the flame and understanding what it is to be burnt and understanding that actual process. Do you think, you know, as a culture, we're sort of completely caught in the, uh, you know, the culture of knowledge and not, we, we, we no longer really understand, well, anything really? Definitely so. Um, because, you know, whether we like to accept it or not, that the majority of our cultural understanding well, cultural, let's say, framework, um, you know, resides at a, at a superficial level, and I think what I think what is very dominant here is 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 the understanding of what reality. Consensus reality has changed, you know, through the ages because it depends what the dominant narrative is, and the dominant narrative is one which people have generally taken on knowledge but not understanding, um, mainly because of course the major channels of knowledge were, are being centralized and controlled. So the information we get is we act on that. Um, you know, it takes a huge shift in that kind of communication. Is that similar to when you when we change from a flat earth understanding to a round earth, you know, and also from a, a kind of, you know, earth centric center of the of the universe to one which, a different one we have now. So knowledge knowledge is changing all the time according to what people are you know, picking up and, and interpreting, whereas understanding is is, is a is a much deeper depth, of course. Um, oh, got my dogs barking there. Hmm. Now the thing is, like, for example, um, you can be given knowledge of how to drive a car, but the question is, you know, until you get in that car and start driving, you then pick up other kind of instinct of how to utilize the car. We have a kind of instinctual understanding of how to drive, but the question is. What are you going to use the car for? You know, knowledge of driving a car is not going to be that, you know, that valid unless you use the car for some purpose. So I think the the utilization factor comes in because when you understand something through experiential knowing, then you know it helps you to navigate what you wish to to do better in your life. So 
Um, I think the big bridge between knowledge and understanding is the utilization. Um, you know, having knowledge of, let's say, you know, the, the stars evolve in the sky, okay, but, um, you know, it goes beyond that, of course, to all the interconnectivity. So, um, yeah, I think m most of the consensus reality doesn't get to, to the uh, profundity of understanding, but stays with cultural knowledge and narratives. Do you think do you think that's where we sort of limit ourselves with our uh, with our body and our minds? I know this is quite a big question, but obviously we, we you know we we tally up this knowledge of physiology, of biology, of chemistry, but we don't have an understanding really of how how to to use our body, how to utilize you know our minds and our body as much as we could. We no longer have that intuitive understanding of our of ourselves. Sure. And, you know, if, if, if you go back to accounts um, of some of the, let's say, teachers or practitioners in the wisdom path, you know, they've been often credited by what we would call doing miracles. And, you know, this often can be a negative fact that it, it kind of puts them on a, on a kind of, you know, unearthly pedestal or of a kind of profit pedestal. Um, but there are abilities of the human body and its participation patient with the um, living cosmos that are obviously beyond the realm of, of a, a rational scientific paradigm and really a miracle if you look at it, a miracle is just the the let's say the laws of another dimension uh, operating in this dimension um, you know in the past ages certain certain you know certain technologies that we utilize today would be seen as miracles through previous generations so it's just um, our our cognitive under our cognitive level and our understanding is just um, at a completely different stage according to the the full capacity of how we can use our minds and our bodies. Um, and I think a lot of it is down to the fact that we have a very you know the scientific revolution gave a kind of empirical way of researching phenomena, and it had to be proven tested. And so you know we we probe and cut open the the human body and we try to find cures for our ills but we don't fully understand the causes of our ills and also i think that um, a kind of let's say that the rational mindset has taken uh, has a perspective which has a very kind of linear perspective rather than integral hold and that's quite a, that's that's becoming a bit of a cliche these days because i know in the last 20 years at least last couple of decades that the integral perspective is coming more to the fore um you know uh, about time as well but I think for far too long the body and mind have been seen as separate and also that comes in about consciousness how we understand these terms what is mind what is body what is consciousness how we understand sorry, how we frame them not understand them how we frame them in uh, our knowledge narratives really then has a consequence of of how we come to you know approach them so if you think that the body and the mind and consciousness are separate separate units you know, um, differentiated from, let's say, the environment around us, the energetic environment around us, or the cosmos around us, then, of course, we see ourselves as just biological units that can be, you know, split apart. There's that famous uh, tale of the, the boy who, you know, wanted to see how the fly worked. So he dissected the fly and took off the wings, took off the legs, and then in the end he said, where's the fly gone? Hmm. Um, you know, we, we're dissecting uh, these these knowledge frameworks and in the end we, we we don't see anything as a whole and i think that's the uh, major uh, problematique of our times james mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's strange though because your book is called the modern the modern seeker you know implying someone who's seeking this knowledge which we're talking about or seeking entry into this and one of the things that i think is quite um quite poignant in a way for you to say is you state the doors of the sanctuary are open in, in every epoch so you know really there is always this choice for for people to become a seeker or to seek i mean maybe whether or not someone can become a seeker that's a different question but you state that the doors are always open to this perennial wisdom um you know what why do we maybe this is an obvious question really but why do why do we as in every, in every epoch it seems that there's only a few who wish to truly um, venture inside you know most people are fine with uh, the language and signs of the herd really and that's always been the case 
um, because, you know, life is all engulfing, let's say, the major narrative. And if we if we use a metaphor that it's, a, let's say, use metaphor of a game, um, then, you know, when you enter a game, um, you get taken up by the gameplay. And, you know, often... Uh, certain narratives are already pre-programmed into the game, so you know you follow the you follow the script, so to speak. Um, now, of course, I in the in the modern age, using that phrase loosely, um, we have both advantages and disadvantages. Um, and I think the major disadvantage is that there's so much distraction at, at, in this in this age in this era, and those distractions are pulling us out of ourselves putting our perspective externally and this comes from a you know from day one is that we are in a sense conditioned to to entangle ourselves externally whether it's on external support structures external forms of obedience you know we go to school we have the you know we have the whatever university or college we have the the job we have those in society that we have to depend on everything is externally focused and you know, in, in relatively recently, it's been full on. You know that we are we are so in, engaged in 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 this external life of having to put our focus onto our career, our you know our whatever personal life, and also our entertainment because we often want to you know have a as we call it we want to have a rest a break. And what do we do? By having a break means basically just focusing your your neurons onto a different distraction, which you know we may enjoy. Um, we have to wonder why there's been such an um, increase in what we call extreme sports over you know recent times because people want to really you know push themselves in different directions and to ex- different extreme experiences to get away from this this kind of pull of of um, the the drudgery of everyday life and but all this is still part of the game narrative and what's what's um, the let's say the um, the part that is non-visible in these esoteric that's always open is that it's always there. It's not been hiding so much. It's, it's just that people um, haven't either had the need to go for it. And that's another thing. Not everybody has the need to be a seeker. And that's fine. You know, if you don't find that you don't feel the need, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing, you know, nothing to do about that. Um, but some people who do feel a need to look for something different in life, um, they may go for um, another path. They may go for whatever religious or spiritual path. But you know, the danger there is that these may also be part of the game, just another, just another narrative, another path to take. And so, really, the reason why people we don't so few people actually get to the to the doorway is that because generally we have to go through a certain level of deconditioning before we can actually see there's a door there. It's a kind of a form of hypnotism. You know, we can be hypnotized. That there's no doors exist in the whole world, you know. If you were hypnotized, James, um, you know, by Darren Brown, and Darren Brown said you'll never see a door again in your life, <laughs> you never see a door. You may you may bump into them, you may find ways of getting around them, but you won't see them. And I think that's part of the the issue is that we've just been hypnotized by the central focus of the gameplay um, of this consensus reality that we just haven't seen what's always been there but in a way that we don't expect it and that's another thing the the perennial uh wisdom traditions have always said that you know what what you're looking for don't look at it in the way that you want to find it because it may may be present in a way you're not expecting do you, do you think that this hip you know uh hypnotism which you're talking about this almost somnambulance of culture do you think that what's causing that is doing so on purpose? Do you think there is sort of a, an agent there that is actually doing it that has some potential maybe even hostility or nonchalance towards humans? Or do you think that this is a, you know, an, a naturally arising hypnotism which just comes from, just bleeds out from culture generally? I would say it's a mixture of both. Although perhaps in recent times the... Um, the nefarious side has probably increased its presence. Um, now, you know, we've all traditions and spiritual and religious traditions have talked about uh, that, you know, we are kind of disconnected from our our origin. And this is nothing new. I mean, in the, in the, in the 
uh, exoteric traditions, they talk about the fall, and a lot of people have the you know the the stories of how we've lost contact with our origin and um, with our homeland. So you know, even the Greek myth about you know they say that when a before before a spirit is incarnated, it drinks from the river river of forgetfulness. So you know there's you know we've we're told that when we arrive in this reality, you know we arrive kind of memory wiped, you know. Um, and so we have a forgetfulness, and we 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 can try to remember throughout the life if we if we can. So there's a sense that when you enter this reality, naturally we have a disconnect, and maybe that's because it helps us to um, participate in this reality better. Or part, maybe part of it is that so we can learn to regain ourselves in a way that um, you know we don't start by coming here exactly knowing where we came from. So there's that part. But of course, like anything, when you're in a game, there are players in the game who say, well, this is the game, I want to control it better, you know? Or, you know, let's take a, a, a general analogy. When you're at school and you're in the schoolyard and you're playing games with friends or whatever, maybe there's always certain groups who want to control the schoolyard games and, you know, be the boss. So taking that to a, a different level, I think there are players who have realized that there is a gameplay going on and they would rather exploit that and take advantage of it. And if more people are unaware of that, the better. So if there's a few who understand some of the game rules, naturally to, to maintain their, their position, they want to make sure that the rest don't have a clue that there's any game rules whatsoever. And I think that's what's happening. And in recent times, that kind of control element or what you may refer to as hostile forces have kind of, uh, gained a, a greater control, so I think um, that's why times are more are more precarious. Because not only do we have the uh, original forgetfulness of which we arrived, we also have forces which are trying to maintain that um, state and even even increase it against us. So I think yes, yeah, these are um, more precarious times, James. Do you, do you think that um, that ability to remember yourself, you know, that that constant action to not be so forgetful to remember and attune yourself to the actual real do you think that's a test in some sense um and in that in that there will be a a reward from that test um, no i don't i don't personally like to see it in those terms um because those terms test and reward to me just kind of smack of the consensus control programming um, you know, we go to school to be tested, and if we don't, if we don't succeed, we feel like we've failed. That's a control mechanism, you know, to succeed or fail. And also, the reward, the carrot and the stick. These are um, these are mechanisms, to my understanding, that are part of, uh, let's say, the game control game of this reality. And um, if if we are, and I, you know, I do contend that we are these. Um, spirits incarnating in this physical reality structure, then, you know, we can't fail in a sense. We can probably not not get it in this reality or not wake up to us in this reality, but I wouldn't let us consider it as a test. Um, I think there's a capacity to awaken and a capacity to accelerate our own individual evolution and we get to that in our own in our own pace. Everybody gets to it in their own rhythm. So there's no, it's not there's not one kind of um, mold for everybody. So you know, in that sense, we, we shouldn't consider it as a failure, but we shouldn't consider that we you know do we find our own rhythm and let's say do we find our own ways of of getting to where we need to be sooner or later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And. It's interesting that you say our own ways of, of getting to where we need to be, because this is something that, um, to bring it back in again, uh, Gajif actually emphasizes in that one, when they're on this sort of perennial path, when they're looking for truth, one should use the sort of the contexts and resources that are available to them in their specific, we could even say temporal or cultural context. And this is something that I've found is that people who sort of venture too far, either back in time or too far sort of um, artificially to their personal context, it often taints whatever system they're trying to use. You often see this with Westerners who 
you know, utilize Buddhism in some sense. And it often doesn't come across as it really should. At least this is my opinion. And, you know, I think this this is something that Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff emphasizes in that any system which makes you sort of um, hostile to your context at the moment or hostile to the modern world is a dangerous system. And it's not really correct. It should be one where you actually utilize what you're in to find a way out. And do you think there's an importance of of sort of using the resources that you have as opposed to venturing too far, you know, too far back? I would say, yeah, I would say what you just said there is actually, you know, is core, is fundamental to um, a genuine path of of wisdom. You know, because these genuine paths, what they what they've always stated is that um, a person must be completely adaptable and work within their own culture um, because the genuine wisdom tradition adapts itself according to um, the time the place and the people so that's why the the uh, exotate religions uh, are seen as being incompatible because they haven't really changed they've just stayed in the same the same kind of um, the same way I mean they've tweaked themselves but they you know they say this is a this is the truth and this is for always but of course, we understand things differently in, according to cultural context. People are, you know, generationally they change. They 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 do change their perspectives, their perceptions, and so you cannot give a one size fits all to to a, a, a kind of path like this. And so, um, a, you know, it's often been said that if you you know if you want to dress like a whatever. If you want to dress like a, um, a person from a different culture in your own culture, fine. But, you know, people look at you odd. The fact is, people, I mean, when people think about, let's say, um, developmental, um, transcendental traditions and teachings, they often think that a person or a practitioner or a seeker should be, you know, someone who looks different, unusual. And that's why that's why many people are attracted to these ex- eccentric figures or, you know, or guru figures. Because actually what they're doing is just showing you what your your own expectations. Uh, a person who really is, is is going through a genuine path of development, you wouldn't spot them in the street. They're completely emerged with their environment. And they're of their they're of their time, they're of their place. And of course, they use the the tools of their time and place. So just as if we you know we we wouldn't use flint stones to, to make a fire today, you know, we'd use a modern means. And so the same with any teaching tradition, that it would choose the tools, the methods, the vocabulary of of the time and of the place. And I think that's what marks the difference between a kinetic living tradition and a static, crystallized, um, non-functional tradition, James. Hmm. Do you think, though, that the language that is used in, in certain contexts in certain times can still hamper that progression, even if they're working within the context. I think, um, you know, Michel Serre calls it the empire of signs. And I wonder if this is something that is always there as a means to alter the way that we define and use and see certain things, you know, and whether or not there's a way to actually get beyond this in all these different contexts that we might go through in life. Well, I mean, signs, obviously... um... Um, there's a again. There's a, a famous phrase which says, um, "A thousand signs are not enough for the negligent." Um, so, if there's a sign, then obviously that that kind of automatically uh, symbolizes an exterior um, figure, an exterior um, connotation of something. You know, a sign represents something else, doesn't it? You know, that's what a sign means. It represents something else. It could be a logo sign. It could be a a sign on a shop. It represents something else. And that's quite telling because we have become, especially in the modern Western societies and cultures, a culture of signs. And and in that way, it kind of also deflects us from going deeper. If we see a sign, we think, oh, yes, that represents so-and-so. And then you stop, you know. And we are are often navigated by signs. Now, Let's say um, a teaching or a tool from the, from the past in a tradition, it doesn't necessarily have to be redundant because a genuine teaching contains the kernel, the kernel which is always relevant. It's, it's obviously how you 
can deliver it and how it's um, passed on. So, it, you know, uh, something from the past may have an external shallow symbol, but if you get past that, there is a kernel which could still be useful. So let's say uh, several years ago, the best-selling poet in America was Rumi. And that was mainly because I think the uh, the uh, author, or rather the, the transcriber, Coleman Barks, did a very good fluid translation of Rumi's poems. Now, Rumi, of course, from the 13th century, um, if you read him in the original, it would be very difficult because of that language is not generally used in the West now. But if you get a good interpreter who can present that, then people found great wisdom in Rumi, even though he's, you know, uh, so many centuries of the past. Um, so there is there is worth in that, but we have to get past the superficial and it has to be relevant for now. It may be functional, but the question is, is it relevant for now? And those are two different questions also. How do you... Perhaps even personally, how do you differentiate or almost intuit between, you know, the genuine and the the false or artificial wisdom? This is, I think this is a tough one. It is, and there's no, um, there's no kind of um, equation for it. You, you basically answered it in the question. It's intuition. Um, and I, again, I'll quote, Rumi, he has a very good phrase. He said, false gold exists because there's real gold, which means to say that, you know, in all times, you know, you'll have to contend with the counterfeit. And the counterfeit exists because, you know, the real exists. And therefore, you know, one is is mimicry of the other. Um, and so um, this is a personal response because there's no way to, to, to you know, frame this other than I would say that a person needs to go through a, a certain process of deconditioning first. We have to look at and consider what are, what are our lens of interpretation? You know, what are our perspectives? Now, if our perspectives are based on a certain cultural upbringing, are they um, social, economic, uh, religious, you know, where where do I gain my perspectives from? Are they influenced by certain ideologies and certain beliefs? We have to look at all these lens of interpretation first, because then you can say, well, if I'm going to look at this information, if I look at it through lens A, B, and C, if I look at it through a social lens, religious lens, and uh, a belief lens, am I going to get, you know, what am I going to get? Am I going to get something which is related to my my own kind of conditioning? So if you can then see that, you may be able to take away your layers of conditioning. And by taking away the layers of conditioning, you may be able to perceive something in its purer form. Um, so any kind of element or aspect of, of true understanding or true uh, truth um, is a matter of perceiving it. And really, I would say it's a process of taking away all the layers of filters and conditioning until you get to a level of your own instinctual nature. And that really just something you have to trust. I call it taste. Um, when I when I come across something, I get a taste, whether this is something genuine or has elements of something genuine or is something artificial and, and construed and is part of the counterfeit culture. It's just taste. And again, another phrase that comes from the from the perennial wisdom tradition is that he who tastes knows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're talking about taste because, you know, now my years of reading this stuff, of me, of interviewing certain people, meeting certain people who are in occult or um, mystical traditions or philosophical traditions, I get a gut reaction to those that you were speaking about earlier, the, the eccentrics, those who are sort of attempting to create an image i sort of have this instant feeling that there isn't really going to be anything there and actually this is something you write about in in the modern seeker and you state that this this what i what i find in these people who are eccentric who have these sort of large aesthetic egos and get-ups is just this rebellion which is almost like a teenage rebellion um which is a you know and you you write about this and you say that actually rebellion rebellion just hampers all any progress that we're making because is this because it's just uh, you know it's another another trick of the system yes in a way i mean often um, rebellion in this context we're talking about is 
is rebelling against the game. Um, but by rebelling against the game, you're playing the game. Um, you know, just look at some some very kind of uh, simple examples. Now, in, in let's say the modern music history, we've always thought the great rebellions are those people who trash the hotel rooms and, and throw the TVs out the windows and, you know, put the put their fingers up to the system. You think, yeah, these are the rebels and they get these bad press. But really, what they're doing is just selling more records. And the, the music industry knows this very well. I mean, why do they think they tolerate such kind of, you know, <laughs> such rebellious people? Because they don't care what they do. They don't care if they stick their fingers up to them because they know they're selling more records and they profit. You know, at the end, the industry profits. And so this is the same thing. Um, it happens in all walks of life as well. Protest. How, you know, okay, it has a certain function, but um, we can be, you know, to fight the system head on and just headbang it. All you're doing is playing into the system because the system will then say, okay, you're protesting. We need to therefore increase our defense or our laws against you protesting. It's a very similar way. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's as if we're not really understanding the game rules. We're just playing into it and being, being kind of, you know, t um, I suppose, used as well. So, yes, I do feel that um, a rebellion in this way is often we think or people may think that they're, you know, getting one over on the system, et cetera, and that. And they're allowed to get away with it because, you know, they're playing into the system. For example, if a rebel uh, guru, eccentric guru, attracts lots of followers, then the system's happy because it's just another distraction and people think that they're having a, you know, uh, they've found a path for them. And so they can they continue with their lives um, rather than trying to really find what is the escape path, what is the what is the real door. So, yes, it all, it all just depends on the system. That's very confusing for for what well, always has been confusing, but that's part of, of the understanding to, to arrive at. Do, do you think there's a different type of rebellion then? You seem to sort of be leading towards that there was a couple of types of rebellion there. Well... I, I would, I mean, I would say one response would be there's a, a, a quite a well-known phrase from the architect book means to follow. I've used it in other contexts, social contexts. I think it also applies to this um, esoteric context. And book Mr. Fuller said, which you may know the phrase, um, you never change the existing system by fighting head on. To change the incumbent system, you create a new system to uh, take its place. So what this implies is that um, you, I think a person has to not try to, yes, I mean, there's a rebellion against the system. There's another rebellion, which is finding your own reality. And also, in a way, finding a way around that. We have to live in this world, of course. We've chosen or we have arrived in this reality. We have to play it. We have to play also with knowing different game rules. So I think the rebellion is actually not reading the the uh, given instruction manual, but trying to find the rules which are outside of the system. And that could be a form of rebellion, but in a very kind of subtle way, in a conscious way, not in a, in a flamboyant look-at-me type of way. Um, I think the real rebellion is, is, a, is a quiet, silent, internal rebellion that nobody will actually notice and before it's too late, as they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is this why you you sort of make it clear that this perennial path is really for those who already lead stable lives? Because if you're in an unstable state and you're being, you know, pulled to and fro, maybe by, you know, I think you do find a lot of this in these um, small cultures of, you know, occultism, mysticism, of, you know, people who might have addictions or people who are just get pulled back and forth between, every, you know, every other system that they find and there seems to be something very almost counterintuitive to that to say well actually you need to be you need to have a stable life i mean you need to know what reality you need to know what the non-reality is well before you can begin to actually explore it if you're already lost then that's you need to work on that before starting anything else would i be on the right lines there you're, you're spot on and that's because um a lot of times these these we'll say spiritual paths or these other forms of transcendental groupings. You talked about occultism, mysticism. Um, people have used them as a as a kind of crutch to to stabilize themselves. Often 
I mean, I, it's, it's, it's no surprise that, you know, mystical and especially occult past have, have in the past attracted very uh, unstable characters because an, an occultism is kind of well known for attracting, you know, the, the rebellious people, the people who want to, um, you know, stick their fingers up to the system. I mean, of course, that's not um, taking anything away from the genuine occultism. There's, there's many, many uh, genuine practitioners. Um, but of course, and obviously, you know, mysticism has attracted weirdos in, in, that, in a kind of uh, that very general sense. It's people who need or are wishing to find something often to validate themselves. They feel that they can't fit in to society. They feel that there's uh, they're owed something. Or, I mean, also, some people want to get revenge on the system, whatever that means or entails. Uh, and some people have, uh, let's say, I have to be honest with you, some people have... Uh, personality disorders, let's say. Um, I mean, there's a whole range and gamut of, of different people in different states. But it's, but generally, you know, it has been known that these traditions have attracted people who need a, a crutch to help them feel, like I say, gain stability or often to gain attention as well uh, to themselves. Um, which is why, you know, there's been many examples of, of, of teachers or guides who just, you know, blank their students because they want to get them, you know, weaned off attention seeking. So if a person first can't find stability within themselves, then yes, they'll come, if they come with a, a, some level of instability, then they'll come with a lot of other things as well. Certain things like expectations, um, attention seeking, um, an unstable attitude towards their peers and people around them. But the whole point of a genuine path is a person has to fit in to their social milieu and fit into their surroundings in a way that doesn't draw attention to them. So if a person is trying to find a path, you know, to make them stand out, to make them look like they're different, and they say, yes, look, I'm different, that's the very opposite of what a genuine path is trying to, to um, develop, James. So it seems sort of completely counterintuitive to the common idea of what it is to, you know, to be a seeker. Really, a seeker is actually someone you will, uh, you should never really see. Would you, would you agree Yes, exactly put. Um, yeah, I think you put it very well. And to put it in a very succinct phrase, a, a genuine seeker is one that you would, you would never spot or recognize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One sort of question I have, because I know, know um, I think we both have this interest here of, of uh, George Gajeev and the Fourth Way, and also the the sort of the offshoots of this school, Uspensky. And I've started to read Bennett since you you recommended him, and probably will move from that into Sufi stuff because that was Benny Bennett's you know interest. And when I, you know when I was reading your book, the, uh, there is some references to Gajeev in there, and because Gajeev I think is working with the perennial wisdom, you know, to clearly come up. But you know, would you agree that he really is, or the fourth way really is, sort of the, one of the most recent, at least well-known attempts at a a perennialism. Yes and no. Again, it, def- it depends how you frame the term "recent," um, because obviously the perennial tradition is so is such a long historical path. Recent could be centuries. Um, so we know, of course, Gajif. Um, now, around the turn of the centuries, there was a, a huge interest in. These different traditions, of course, there was uh, theosophy with Blavatsky. There was a great, before that, you know, the rise in spiritualism. There was, after that, there was Steiner as well. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a kind of age where a lot of interest was burgeoning. And what Gajeev did, of course, was he went and physically went to the East and traveled uh, most of his life to seek some of the origins of these teachings. And he wanted to bring them back to a Western context. And that, that for me, is a, is a very um, powerful element in the Gajiz fourth way, is that he took them out of, he, he went to seek these teachings from their origins, but his intention was to um, interpret them for a, a Western audience, which is why he used scientific um, and psychological uh, framework and terminology. Um, so... In that sense, I think he did a, a great service in bringing over um, a realm of information that did actually pique a lot of people's interest. But of course, no, I wouldn't say he was the most recent uh, because Gajeev was a very visible character. 
<laughs> to say the least. And as I said, around that time, from the from the end of the 19th century until like the middle of the 20th century, um, there were some very uh, visible characters. But after Gajeev, uh, you mentioned Bennett, and Bennett, you know, the history of Bennett is well known in these circles, and I think he talks about it very much in his autobiography. He says that obviously when when Gajeev passed on, and then of course Jispensky and Gajeev passed on within a, a couple of years of each other. Um, he was looking for the next person in the lineage, and the, the history, if you if you follow it, is that he came across this person who came in the um, lineage of Sufism. His name was Idris Shah, and Bennett was convinced after meeting Shah on several occasions that he also represented this lineage, um, but was um, presenting it within the framework of Sufism, but in a much a Western psychological framework of Sufism, rather than a kind of the, the past Islamic form of Sufism. And in when Bennett came convinced of this, he just basically gave his whole school, his buildings his, uh, uh, over to, um, to Shah, which was a great sacrifice to give away your whole, you know, um, meeting center and school and, and, and everything. He passed on to Shah. So I would say in that respect, um, Shah is more recent than Gajif and does follow that lineage. Okay, okay. Um, is there anything you'd like to, to add about the modern seeker which, we, uh, which uh, I might have glossed over? Or obviously there's going to be a lot, but is there anything key that you'd like to add? Well, I mean, we covered a lot. I'd probably like to talk about technology um, because, we, you know, it's hard to have a discussion on the modern age without understanding technology. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I, fra- I mean, I was I wasn't sure whether I wanted to frame it as, you know, the seeker, because obviously the seeker has so many connotations the spiritual seeker, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted to try to get the across the impression that the seeking or the path to true understanding does exist, and therefore it exists in the modern time. But in the modern time, we're surrounded by technology, and there's a, for some people, there's a sense that technology and the path to, to advanced technology and AI um, kind of, for some people, kind of uh, takes away the the um, let's say the functionality or the need for a, a, a kind of inner path, and I would say I would say you know that this technological age, on the contrary, necessitates uh, more focus on the inner understanding because technology is an external manifestation of the human state. You know, it, it's something which we it's an interface which humanity utilizes, but. That interface um, has developed so quickly in the past few decades in a way that I I would feel that the inner state or the inner perceptual level of humankind um, is no is having a kind of um, dissonance with this, and I think that's creating some of the unbalance. Is that technology and and technologists are racing ahead, um, but there's been a lack of attention onto the necessity of the human inner state. Because if we're not careful, um, we will be too immature and not perceptive enough to understand where technology is taking us because we haven't also, you know, accelerated our development either. Technology can give us access to great communication, great information. And in fact, you know, a person can find a lot of the tools needed today by searching online. Um, now, in the past, a lot of this information was only available by finding a local community, let's say a teacher. Um, going through a, a process of initiation. But in the recent years, so much uh, information and knowledge, which leads to understanding, has been made available in, in ways we wouldn't expect because um, I think there's a need now for people to reach to it. So technology can, can is a tool that enables us to also do our own research, um, enable us to interface with the world and around the world and to connect just that we're doing, and it's in no way incompatible with seeking a, a path of internal development. On the contrary, it can be one of the major tools. Um, we have to realize that it's our state which allows us to utilize our external tools, James. So it's sort of a case of using our will 
to once again not caught up in not get caught up in some sort of uh, artificially created addictive mechanism, which seemed to be a bit more rampant in technology, especially within smartphones, smartphones and social media. But I don't think these actually really differ too much from you know the, the past technologies that we've had. It's just a, once again a case of uh, utilizing one's will and you know overcoming that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, the external world is a, is, you know, it's a, I use that word loosely, projection, but it's interrelated with our internal world. The two go together. Often that's why we see so much issues in the world at the moment. It's almost as if our unconscious projections are being played out in the world. So ex- these external, um, let's say, the external objects, tools, technology, these are, these are all elements that we can use. Uh, for our, our own seeking, our own internal development. They are a part of us. We should not see them as being separate. That, again, is going back to the earlier narrative of the, the kind of materialistic na- narrative that we are independent, standalone physical bodies and the world around us are separate. No way. We are inter- interrelated to, um, to the finest degree. And so, therefore, we should use external tools for internal necessities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it seems to be a, a good place to, to sort of finish up, unless there's anything you'd like to add. Um, whereabouts can we can we purchase the Modern Seeker? Well, the Modern Seeker, I, I published this through my own imprint, um, rather than going through a, a traditional publisher. So it's it's an it's a, a book which is print on demand, so it's available online. So if you do online search uh, for the usual places to find it, you can find it. Um, and I would just like to add that um, everything I put in the book and everything we talked about today is only coming from my personal perspective and I would encourage others to go out and find their personal perspective and to understand through their own experience Um, don't take what I've said as being gospel (laughs) it is not it's just my understanding I encourage other people to find their own and, uh, and go their own way Okay. Kingsley Dennis, thanks very much.